image likeness. Those three words, when turned into the acronym NIL, have sent the world of college sports into a tizzy since it was brought into play over the last two years. How does that have to do with NFTs, aside from them sounding somewhat like one another? We'll answer that question and a whole lot more on this edition of the Minor Leagues. Matt, you're looking solemn in that blue light there. Even though that this is our, uh, you're like a solemn sports philosopher, SSP, if you wanted to make an acronym out of it. This is our back to college episode, isn't it, Matt? We're talking all about yep. colleges, college sports, college NFTs, and you are going to be breaking down some stuff that I have wondered about for a long time. And that is that college sports make a bunch of money. Yep. But the players, they're not supposed to be compensated. To me, I remember when I found that out in college, I was like, oh, well, this just seems wrong. <laughs> well, it's a long-running tradition in collegiate athletics, unless you're certain schools, where players didn't get paid for a long period of time. People were paid, wink, wink, under the table. But now this has brought boosters and different businesses, like let's say Alabama car dealerships, out of the darkness and into the light, doing things legally. It has created a sense of a sense of parity in college football to where colleges like Tennessee can be on a, a similar playing field with Alabama. They can juice their program that they were building through recruiting with the ability to have these different offers and have different people offer NILs, name, image, and likeness, which allows you to sell your name, image, and likeness. And some players are making millions of dollars. Some of them are making thousands of dollars. Some of them are making hundreds of dollars but it has facilitated for the first time ever across collegiate athletics the opportunity for athletes to make money and actually sustain a living and not subsist on uh, their scholarships and still just being poor college students. It's allowing high-level athletes who are competing in front of potentially millions of viewers. 17 million people watched Alabama and Tennessee. I was one of them. Sure, I was at a sauna in central New Jersey last week. That's true. I went I went to go for a schwitz with a buddy of mine, and they had... <laughs> Wait, the, you're watching the game in a sauna? No, 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 no. It was in the area... It was the area outside of the sauna. I was watching the end of the was game. going to be how the screen didn't fog up, but you cleared that <laughs> up. Okay, all right. But all watching that game... And much like this show where I don't have my glasses on because of the lighting reflecting off my lenses, I didn't have my glasses on watching the game, but you can sense that level of insanity. It was one of the most, it was the most watching this stats coming from the Dan LeBetard show with Stu Gotts. It was the most watched game between Tennessee and Alabama since 1987. So that is two years before I'm born. So that is back in, I think, the Ray Perkins days of Alabama. And when you look at the world of college sports and the idea of parity, we have seen teams like Alabama dominate. And then you have LSU coming in once every five years. You have USC who dominated in the early 2000s, Texas, Oklahoma. Now you're seeing schools like Miami get into the game again and be able to spend money with NILs and help rebuild a program that was really maligned for the last couple of years. Jackson State, uh, an HBCU, an historically black college and univer or university. Teams like them, teams like Grambling State, who launched their own NIL initiative, their own, pardon me, their own NFT initiative this past a week ago, 
for their most recent slate of home games, including their homecoming game. These are game changers for universities and for athletics programs and for schools. Like Jackson State is coached by Deion Sanders. Deion Sanders is one of the most well-known pro football and college football players, hell, even baseball players in the history of sports. Him going and not coaching at Florida State University, who fumbled the bag in bringing in one of their most beloved alums, mm-hmm. created the opportunity for Jackson State to get a gigantic influx of money, influx of revenue, influx of attention. Their games are being broadcasted nationally. There's a focus and a spotlight on them. They got the number one recruit, I believe, of this uh, you know this incoming class to join them because they wanted to be coached by Deion Sanders. These things are game changers in the world of college sports and NILs allow for like a bar stool to give NIL deals to players because they have a relationship with Coach Sanders or even small, you know, large businesses who have done business with Dion can do partnerships or NIL deals or these different NFTs can facilitate funding to turn these schools into world-class programs that could compete with Alabama. And you can look at the same thing, women's basketball, something that is a key economic driver for schools like UConn. When you think of women's college basketball in this country, you think of UConn. You think of Tennessee with the late Pat Summit. You think of a bunch of different schools, but what you don't think of are the the ramifications of those players playing in Madison Square Garden, playing on national television on ESPN, and seeing not a dime, not a nickel, not a fucking hay penny for what they what they put out into the world. And I've personally found it, for as long as I've been a sports fan, disappointing and embarrassing. I am a person who has went to several different schools throughout my time in education. I'm a graduate of New York University. New York University is a D3 school. It is one of the most prestigious education platforms, one of the most prestigious universities in North America. Did you know this about the Ivy League, uh, Nathan? NYU, obviously not in the, in the Ivy League. They're a Division three school. So you have you, there's no scholarships. There's no true scholarships to be a student at NYU. But at Columbia, just about 110 blocks away uptown, if you're in the Ivy League, you cannot get a scholarship. You can't be a scholarship athlete. You don't get athletic scholarships in the Ivy League. Hmm. That is odd. And I wonder I wonder when that changed because obviously I don't know the history of it, but I could have sworn that Jack Kerouac in the 40s had an athletic scholarship to Columbia, but I may just be mistaken about that. I'm going to take your word at this. That's, that's on information that I was told hmm. may be wrong. We can look, if you want to look that up and, and confirm that I'm stupid or not stupid... We can do that. But I have never been a college football fan. I like college football. I'll watch college football. The national title game is on a Monday, so usually that interferes with my other programming. And it's on Saturday afternoons, and I don't have time for that. But I've worked on college football. I was the engineer in New York for the radio broadcast of Notre Dame games for several years. And when they made their run to the national championship, I was pushing up a, a, like what I have on my board here, a fader bar 
so you can actually hear the game and then hear commercials. But Nathan, enough of my rambling and my pseudo-socialism. What are your questions about NILs and college sports? So Matt, I just looked it up and you are correct. Yeah, I'm not Um, stupid. You are correct. The reason why Jack Kerouac had to drop out of Columbia after injuring his leg while playing um, football was because he obviously couldn't afford to attend Columbia. So he was getting some sort of weird pseudo, like, not scholarship, but he he had the entry grades to go there, and he thought that maybe that would get him. You know, you're talking about literally back in the 40s, late 30s. So, you know, I'm sure. And that's when Columbia and the Ivy League had a shot at winning games. Now, yeah, now they don't. It was, you know, it was, they, they didn't have a whole lot of competition, especially from, you know, state schools and stuff like that. Also, just not as many people even went to college. So you're talking about the people, the pool of people even playing college athletics is extremely small. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah interesting. I've always just found it fascinating that, like, so you mentioned Alabama. That is a team that I'm somewhat familiar with uh, since I went to college uh, at, at Auburn, and there's only two, you know, prominent schools in Alabama. I just remember when I learned that college athletes don't get paid or they don't get any compensation for their work, I thought, like, if you just look at it like a company, right, and Nick Saban is the CEO of the Alabama football team, people always praise Nick Saban. He did such a good job. He did this. He won these championships. (laughs) But just like any company, it's not like Nick Saban is out there throwing the damn football. So (laughs) it always just, like, from a very basic level, even as a non-sports fan, I was like, why don't these guys get just get paid like uh, either a salary or some sort of advanced wage system where it's like the guys on the bench make minimum wage and the guys on the guys, the guys on the, uh, the field make maximum wage or like, like, but it, when you said like, Oh, I remember when somebody told me, yeah, they just make zero. It's like, you can just see going to football games, especially in the South, the sec, you were talking about television broadcasts, biggest network. They, they make the most money. You just know, like, it's just like a, like a human thing, like not even like a sports thing. You're like, this is wrong. Why don't we just pay these people? And then I can feel fine about watching this game. It's, it's odd. And I think that nobody is fooled that this is like pure, pure sportsmanship for the love of the game. And then of course it gets way too nuanced when you talk about people make the excuse, they say, Oh, well, these guys, you know, they're getting a shot to go into like the NFL. But even I, once again, as a non-sports fan, know that it's like a 5% acceptance rate for these guys into the NFL. So for me, I'd love to know, Matt, more about like, when did this name image likeness stuff start? We've got some stories here about people doing it with NFTs, but like I am for college athletes getting paid for their unique form of labor. That just seems common sense to me. Yeah, we'll go through NILs in a second, but this uh, from the on three dot from on three dot com. Here are the highest paid coaches in college football: Nick Saban makes eleven point seven million dollars a year. Kirby Smart yeah. makes eleven point two five million dollars a year. This is on average over their current contracts. Brian Kelly and Mel Tucker, along with Brian Ryan Day and Jimbo Fisher, make nine point five million dollars, and Dabo Sweeney makes nine point three million dollars per year. Those are some of the biggest names in coaching, and they are making a combined $50 million a year between them. And some of these are public institutions. The University of Alabama is a public institution. Yeah, so, so is Auburn. Mm-hmm. So Nick yeah. Saban is the highest paid employee 
in the state of Alabama, followed behind Dabo Sweeney, who I believe is still the coach of Clemson. Or Auburn, pardon me, Auburn. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't keep up with that. All, all I know is that when I was at school at Auburn, this was another kicker that got me is you say, well, oh, they're just paid per year. So if we really wanted to change stuff, you fire them and then they're done and they don't get paid. No, no, nope. no, no. Once again, even as a non-sports fan, I know that these guys have multi-year contracts. And I remember because I was working at the student newspaper at the time when this happened, Gene Chizik won a national championship in 2012 or 2011. I don't remember one of those years. It was right before I graduated. And then he didn't the next year. And so they canned him. And I thought, okay, you know, you do a bad job, you get canned, whatever. They don't have to pay you. No, he had a five-year contract and he was only on, I think, year three. Maybe it was even longer than a five-year contract. And I remember somebody told me that they're still gonna have to pay him like $35 million. And it, it like, it to me, the concept of getting paid for a job that you're not actually working at is convoluted enough to to it's not like pto where you've built no. up and accrued this time it's just you're, you're literally getting paid to not work at this thing but somebody's paying for it and so, it just blew my mind so speaking of auburn Dabo sweeney is the coach of clemson pardon me but for auburn this coming to us from cbs sports coach brian harson if he was fired, he would be owed 70% of his remaining contract value if he's fired without cause prior to the end of the deal, according to ESPN. That equates to just $15 million. If he's fired in the middle of the season, half of that amount will be thirty due in 30 days after termination, a stipulation that was previously included in Malzahn's contract. You gotta love lawyers, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's wacko to me. Only in... I don't know, only in sports and maybe crypto. Um, but you know what, Matt? I want to know, like, name, image, likeness. Before NFTs, I'm getting the sense that that used to mean, like, trading cards or, like, jerseys. or like. But I, I don't know anything about name, image, likeness. Is this the only way that college athletes could make money off of? Legally, yes. Which is crazy because how do you not own your name, image, and no, likeness? No, they lease their name, image, and likeness. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they <laughs> lease their name, image, and likeness. So if you play a game with the – you can't buy merch or jer – I believe you could buy jerseys with the players' names on the back. But for the most part, if you look at major college programs, none of them really have the name of the player on the back of the jersey. Alabama, um, Notre Dame. A few of them don't. And then when you, and there's no merch with their face or likeness on it, but they can make money off of it. The NCAA games for a long time, and this is the reason why NCAA football games and all NCAA games went the way of the Dodo in the mid-2000s was because players sued because it was them in the game, but instead of saying, you know, you know Nathan Simone running back Auburn, it would say number five running back Auburn. I'm tickled that you think that I could ever become a running back, but <laughs> compliment accepted. And, and what's so interesting about this, Matt, is that the only thing I can compare this to internationally is that the hyper-regionalism and dedication that some people have to college sports, even though most people only went to these institutions for four years. Or didn't even um, go. Oh, exactly. <laughs> Don't get me started on Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I guess I know a little more about college sports than I thought. Um, 
The only thing this reminds me of is in Europe where you have the football teams that yes. are local to the town, right? It's like, oh, I grew up in Manchester. I, you know, I ride or die by Manchester United. But in Europe, they got it correct where it's like these guys seem like they clean up even if they're from a teensy tiny town because they can do whatever they want to. They're just treated like adults. It seems like we have the exact same thing well, in the U.S. college sports, except you're still treating them, even though they're above the age of 18, you're essentially treating them legally like kids that they can't like make money off of. Once again, the very unique labor that they're doing. Well, there's a distinction. What you're talking about in European football is that they're professionals at, oh, yeah. at any level. Like, I believe it's like the professional league. If you watch Welcome to Wrexham, which is a great show. Um, they explain how the English and UK football system is. But there are the Premier League, the Champions League. There's a litany of leagues throughout Europe, but these are high-paying leagues. And they are salaries, you know, some as low as six figures. You know, I think it's like a base salary in the upper leagues of like a minimum of six figures. But there are some players making tens of million dollars a year. And it's the same thing as pro sports here in the United States, but the difference is there are kids in upper team, you know, upper tier leagues in the Premier League, 16, 17, 18 years old. There are kids getting signed to contracts in the same way that high college recruiters are getting, you know, giving out scholarship offers in football to kids who are 13 or 14. Like really? you're, yeah, like if you remember Freddie Adu, he was a young soccer sensation back when we were kids. And he was like the first American teen soccer prospect. As the time as LeBron James came to prominence, this is, you know, within all of that hype, Freddie sadly never lived up to the hype due to a myriad of injuries and just a whole bunch of other stuff. But the, you know, European football has been around for nearly two centuries. And the way these games are played and the way these structures are in place have been there. There is no high-level college sports to the same level that there is in the United States, in Europe, to my knowledge. There's nothing like that. The NCAA is its own thing, and up until the, 1950, the late 1950s, practically 1960s, more people watched college football. More pe I think as many people watch college football now as the NFL, but college football was the more prevalent sport in this country than pro football, and college basketball was the same way for a long period of time because these were venerable institutions. They, pr they pushed the idea of amateurism and the love of the sport and all that bullshit. And pro leagues were still coming out of the morass. Like the, the idea of pro sports as we know it is just around 60 years old to where maybe 70 because baseball is the first one who really, really made it work because they were America's pastime and everybody loved baseball. Mm -hmm. Football, basketball, hockey all fought uphill battles up until the 1950s and 60s. And, it, you know, in different markets like New York or, you know, certain parts of the country, these were big deals. These were big sports, but they didn't play nationally. The thing that broke it open for football 
was, of course, the NFL championship game between the Colts and the Giants, the first NFL championship game to ever go to overtime. Big whole deal. Giants lost because of Alan Amici running into the end zone. Uh, let's set about that. The better, even though it was a game that happened 31 years before I was born. It happened a me minus two before I was even born. But the world of the NCAA didn't change. We didn't see an evolution in college sports. We saw an evolution in them making money, but not the players making money. If you look up the media rights of college football in this country, it is quite possibly per year, per contract, the gross domestic product of a small island nation. The SEC makes hundreds of millions of dollars on their various deals with CBS and ESPN. You look at the proliferation of money in college football over the last 20 years, and you will see billions of dollars move between networks and conferences and their member teams. So much so that Oklahoma is moving to the SEC. There are, at one point, the University of San Diego almost went to the Big East when the Big East was the Big East. Conferences are where the money is made. I am of the opinion that in the next 20 years, the NCAA will no longer exist as the power broker in college sports, and we will see the, the conferences take hold and we will see a new governing body or a new governing set of ideals take place in college sports. San Diego almost joined the Big East? Yeah. Makes uh, no sense. You know, I'm usually pretty decent at geography, and last time I checked, San Diego is at the bottom of California. It ain't near the fucking east. <laughs> the far east, yeah. Oklahoma, too. Um, you know, shade on Oklahoma. I'd actually love to visit uh, The Outsiders. Great book. Um, but not, I would consider that in the Midwest, just like Kansas. Yeah. Although technically, I mean, the middle of the West, geography. Obviously, the Midwest is like Ohio, Chicago, stuff like that. But yeah, not in the South. Sometimes I barely even consider Texas to be in the South. But um Fascinating. So, Matt, what we're really here to discuss, other than why the NCAA should be outcompeted, uh, my, my all of my grievances, all of I mean, once again, even as a non-sports fan, this this is the kind of stuff where it's like it'd be like if you told me it'd be like if you told me that you know my favorite grocery store or something like that, you know, that does really well and it seems like it's amazing. Nobody there gets paid, and you're like, well, why do they show up? And you're like, they they should just be happy to be associated with the, you know, with the brand name. And you're like, I don't know, seems, seems like a lot of nonsense. So, um, because you see college sports on everything, sweatshirt, shot glass, you name it, the college sports logo, there's an officially endorsed version of it and they're making money off of it. And if you, um, like I remember when, when I went to Auburn, it was Cam Newton. So if you want to think about it, there's usually a couple of charismatic athletes that are really propping up that brand and making one brand better than the other or more profitable than the other. Like you could have made the argument to me that you were like, well, Cam Newton is y'all's, you know, CEO of this brand right now. And he's not getting anything 
before it. Uh, fortunately, he seems to have done pretty well after, but it just makes no sense to me. And so, Matt, I want to know with the stories that we have here, how NFTs are maybe changing this or they're making it easier to get NIL deals or maybe how they're like skirting around it. You kind of understand this a little bit more than I do. Um, I'll have some choice comments on some of them. Yeah, so we'll start with the story from Front Office Sports. Iowa's Luke Garza and Gonzaga's Jalen Suggs minted some of the earliest NFTs in the college sports world after finishing their final seasons in the NCAA. When July 1st hit, college athletes across the country would follow suit. Companies are flocking to the industry. Some existing sports memorabilia brands have created NFT platforms. But the early success of NFTs have given way to increasing controversy, including the recent crypto crash. But... We, we look at the story, Nathan, and you have the Players' Lounge, which was started by two former Georgia players and has created school-specific groups of NFTs through most of their value lives associated in-person events. So there's utility in all of these. Tickets, mm -hmm. in-person events, meet and greets, memorabilia, all that razzmatazz. You have the Legacy League, which fo focuses on NFTs in uh, women's sports and Olympic athletes, often in collections relating to athletes' interests. You have Katana Capital, who have put together a DAO and a metaverse potential. There's a lot of things that it's appealing to athletes, and also it captures on a market base. If you create a hyper-rare NFT and you sell it to a college audience, college football athletes are, for that period of time where they are at that school, whether it's one semester or four years, they are treated as gods if they are on a team that's good. So, Or even if a team a team's mediocre, you know, there's players that are lauded as gods and they have a market base and you can satiate that market base with NFTs. And it's a way to get close to the athlete because that's what people want. They want access. They want the ability to have a piece of their idol. It goes back to the tribalism and religious and sports content, you know, concept that we've been talking about since we started this show. It all pairs well together. It is the charcuterie board of cultural infusion. Love a good charcuterie Who board. Who doesn't? Well, and you know, Matt, if they're easy on the eyes like you, you know they're never having to pay for a hamburger. So it's just, it's you're right. People want access there. And this article goes on to say, this is something that I'm, you know, I'm already bullish on NFTs, especially the Cardano NFTs. But <laughs> this is something that I, this is something that makes me hopeful, right? So it's like, okay, the NCAA can keep doing their older outdated stuff and y'all can keep doing that if you want to. I'm not going to pay attention to it because I, I just don't have time for, I don't tolerate stupid very well. So yet I'm um, still employed. <laughs> that, no, 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 you are not. I'm stupid. not employed. Oh God. <laughs> oh no, not again. The live firing of Matt Ryan. So um, Stuart Bush, the CEO and co-founder of the Legacy League, which is one of the NFT platforms you mentioned, said that athletes can make anywhere from $300 to $500 or $10,000 to $20,000 per NFT sale. So obviously, we're still going with the popularity of the athlete. However, on his platform, he's vowed that athletes receive 75% of the total NFT sale. So they receive the majority of the NFT sale if they have a good NFT, if they're working with these graphic designers, if they have somebody that they can you know, lend their ear to or understands this market, kind of like me or, or Kalichi uh, uh, does, or you particularly, Matt, where even, even though you may still be learning about NFTs, you definitely understand the sports market. They get a hot tip. They could be making 10, 20, more than they're making right there for a collectible 
And here's the added benefit. Now, when you make trading cards or in-person collectibles, if those get sold on the secondary market, it's like me giving a dollar bill to the ninth person. There's no paper trail of who should be collecting royalties on this sort of stuff, unless it's going through some sort of huge auction house. But on the blockchain, and this is one of the reasons why Magic Eden and Solana are probably going to fail, you have secondary market sales and royalties. And so if you are continually a popular athlete, no matter who you are, what sport you play, and people are trading your NFTs because they like you, you're still making a small percentage off of that, your name, image, likeness. So all the incentives there, they add up for me. Am I going to be the market for buying some of these NFTs? No, but that's okay. There's plenty more other sports people. I just think compared to the NCAA, this incentive system, which is not perfect by any means, is already, it's just blowing past them. It's like, wow, more of this. This is the innovation that I love to see from the blockchain space. And this is, this is in the true spirit of crypto. When it, comes, when it comes to NFTs and sports, I find it interesting here how NFT and sports collectibles can be you know, people put down NFTs because they say they're just JPEGs, right? Don't, don't buy the JPEGs. Why would you buy a JPEG? Well, newsflash people, the most high quality images are PNGs. That's besides the point. To me, it had always, it had always seemed a little bit silly to buy someone's jersey, to buy a football. I understand that there's sentimental value attached to this, but it's just, it's not for me. I'm not in the market for it. So when people try and put down NFTs and they say, why would you want a digital version of this athlete, that athlete, you know, something like that. To me, it's no different than me saying like, hey, I'm just not interested in wearing so-and-so's jersey or having this game football. I understand why other people want it. But so it's interesting that I wonder what the digital and physical overlap will be for these, because I'm willing to bet that the sports fans that are really into NFTs maybe the physical items have a little bit less of the pull on them because the physical items, uh, similar to why people would like Bitcoin over gold, the physical items can be stolen. You can be extorted for them. You have There's a cost of storage, especially if it's a really, really valuable item. So that's an interesting thing to me right there. For me, it comes down to, I think I, I disagree with you on on the idea of the physical not being valuable because sports memorabilia, especially college memorabilia, is such a valuable marketplace. We've seen the highlights and what Top Shot and All Day for the NBA and NFL respectively have done with their partnership with Dapper, and we've seen some colleges or look towards something like that. I think for the fan base, they want the experience, they want the access, they want the actual item, because it's a connection to their school. It's a connection to their favorite player, and it's tangible. I think that a lot of people are viewing these as trading cards or gift cards for experiences or things to cash in on or a way to support their favorite player. I think the utility matters more than just the, the piece of crypto art or it being in this new exciting space. It could be marketed one way, but I think that the true root of that audience is wanting to be one step closer to being on their team. Yeah, and I, I also wonder, too, if maybe the NFTs are going to be an easier way to reach a sort of 
your income audience so that you keep your true fans. You know, you, a lot of sports personas, male or female, you know, they like to position themselves as, um, you know, pure athletes. They like meeting people. They're grateful. They're most of them are pretty humble, but they ha also have to understand that, you know, if there's only one game ball or there's only five jerseys, there's just a certain limited amount of collectibles they can do. And I'm not saying that they have to go crazy, right? They don't have to release a 10,000 NFT collection, but it could be something to where it's like, you know, hey, I know that not everybody can afford these collectibles. I love my fans, you know, without your support and your cheering at the games, I can't do this. I have a hundred NFTs that the, you know, the floor price is $50 or something that's affordable to the average fan that of course will be sold on the secondary market or something like that. But at least if that initial, if you're really a true fan, you still have kind of a shot at getting a, a collectible like that. that. That's just something that I'm spitballing in my mind here. Yeah, no, I completely can see it going a litany of ways. But what are the questions do you have with the time we have left, Nathan? Well, you know, I, I wanted to touch on, I think you've answered a lot of my questions here, Matt. I wanted to touch on really briefly the University of Michigan having this like NFT exhibition, because I think that that's a good thing to close on because it it actually features art created by athletes from the University of Michigan, which you think would be a poll in itself. But no, Matt, they had to get Bored Ape Yacht Club in as the initial draw. What are your thoughts on this? It makes sense. Like, it's the leader in the industry. Uh, you don't, you would want it to be focused on the students and the work and the art that they've put in. But we work in money. We know that money makes money, and having the BAYC cosign is an important thing in this space. You can't run, like, we've been to our fair amount of conventions and doodads and parties and all this other stuff, and Yuga Labs and Board Ape Yacht Club, their presence is always felt in one way or another, and it's hard to run away from that. When you're the brand leader, when you are the face of the entire industry and you don't want to give one specific thing in NFTs that, that distinction, but when you think of NFTs outside of the bubble of people who work and obsess over NFTs, first thing they think about are apes, those stupid, stupid apes. I'm not saying that's what they're saying. I'm not saying that. Don't come after me, Yuga. I'll say it in a bit. <laughs> but the, the problem comes down to what we've talked about on this show and on Brain Trust and on NFT 101 is what do you want them to be? We have a story on the non-fungible news this week about two SEC officials trying to argue what can and can't be regulated by the government when it comes to crypto and NFTs. Do you want it to be art? Do you want it to be an investment? Do you want it to be a gift card? Or do you want it to be a security? If you want it to be a security, it's a different conversation. I think that the way we've, we view all of these assets, because NFTs for me are a catch-all. Because what is an NFT to me? It's an amalgam of things. It's not one thing. The only thing that connects them all together is that it is a digital asset that you own and trade. Outside of that, the utilities are different, the functions are different, 
The reasons to invest are different. What you're buying across all platforms are different. And they're going to continue to evolve and change, much like sports. But where is the line? What is, what, what's the NIL line? What's the line that draws it from amateur to somewhat professional through NILs or absurdly professional? Because these kids, to go back to college athletes, these kids are professionals. Mm-hmm. They're performing in front of millions of people. I can turn on my television anytime from September to March, hell, April, and find college football, college basketball on my television or in my program listings or on my social media feeds. So at what point does it not become, what, at what point is an amateur? Like what? At what point do the 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 idea of amateurism for the sake of amateurism was shot back in the back of the head during the point fixing scandal at City College, when or when they put these games on national TV, or guys like Billy Cannon were being paid under the table in sacks of cash, or given Cadillacs, or given Lincolns, or given what have you. You hear about the Fab Five, the players in Michigan had their banner taken down from making it to the Final Four. It was taken down. And it's hilarious that Michigan is an NFT school after this because some of their players, such as Jalen Rose and the other players, Jimmy King and what have you, they took money from boosters to buy sneakers because they needed clothes to go to school or food because... They were broke college kids from Detroit. God forbid. <laughs> I just. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, I say this, man. I say if you want to be an amateur, um, then you'll know the true amateurs from the professionals because the amateurs are just out there doing it and not trying to compensate themselves for it. But even then that gets tricky because it's like, at what point do you upload enough videos to YouTube and you become so popular that YouTube owes you money? So it's like the only people that I would consider true amateurs are just people that are not performing in front of other people. They're doing it for the love of the sport. Like I see skateboarders in the park and it's like, these guys are amateur skateboarders. How do I know they're amateurs? Cause I'm not watching them at the X games and they're not sponsored by monster. But as soon as you have cameras and somebody else is profiting off of you and things like that, why don't we just say you're a professional? And, and people say like, they'll say ridiculous things like, well, hitting a volleyball is not a profession. And you're just like, if, I mean, the guy who works at McDonald's is a professional hamburger flipper. It doesn't mean just because you don't like, or you think that that's not like a, a skill worthy of emulating or, or putting on, you know, a pedestal, that's fine. You can do whatever you want to, but like, it's professional if you're doing it and making money for somebody else. And I'm, I'm going to have a hot take here on BAYC get him for uh, for the University of Michigan. I think I've just I've I've had enough here, Matt, and I've got to say this, you know, I'm an NFT lover, I'm a crypto lover, I'm a Bitcoin OG. I've been in this space a long time, and I'm going to have a hot take here. I think that Board Ape Yacht Club is one of the dumbest NFT collections of all time that totally has gone against the spirit of crypto and you should just stop paying attention to it because the only reason it has value is because people keep paying attention to it. Meanwhile, it provides little to no utility and it is basically the antithesis of Bitcoin. So 
I sincerely do not like BAYC. I think I can think of $20 Cardano NFTs that I'd rather buy than be given a BAYC. So I understand why they had to do this as kind of a, uh, not even a lost leader, as like a big old Hollywood sign to get it into uh, have art created by athletes at the University of Michigan, but they're just, they're just dumb apes, people. They literally do nothing. It's, it's, I'm, uh, I'm still amazed that people are, are fascinated by it. It has to just be the money at this point because there's, they provide literally nothing of value. Rant over. And, and I, I'm someone who loves Marcel Duchamp. He is the person who put a signature on a toilet and put it in an art gallery, and it's one of the most famous outsider art pieces of all time. He was the one who said, the pipe is not a pipe. And even then, like, I, I get why people like BAYC, because it's cool and it's a hip, trendy thing. It's the same thing as collecting sneakers, as collecting art. It is a hobby, and it is something that has become... There's a term for it. It's called hype beasting. People who obsess over BAYC are hype beasts. Doesn't make them bad people, but it makes you a hype beast. You 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 have fallen all over yourself to be a part of a trend. Eh, grace and regard to you, you know. For for the grace of God, go you. You know, be be cool. I I don't care. Like I I I am at the point in my life where people hopping onto trends that necessarily don't hurt people don't bother me. You know, BAYC does hurt people, but that's unintended consequences due to, you know, the the backlash of hype. And we see mm -hmm. that all the time in sports, the backlash of hype. But we have talked inordinately about the things we don't like. We've handled all family business. If you like the show, if you got topics, you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Ryan Yells. Nathan, where can they find you on the Twitter machine? Oh, it's at Crypto Nathan. 76. I'll be talking about how much I don't like BAYC. Just kidding. I never talk. You can also like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. If you didn't catch our names or our social handles, you can check them in the show notes. You can also follow the NFT 101 crypto and crypto conversation podcast feed. You can rate, review, like, comment, and subscribe to this YouTube channel if you're watching the video feed. If not, you don't get to see my cool lighting and you don't get to see Nathan's plant that I've named Jimothy. But on that note, for all of us here at BitMart, this has been another edition of the Minor Leagues. For Jimothy, for Nathan, for me, bye-bye. Jimothy. -bye. <laughs>